For Lucy, loneliness was a way of life. Joe Jr.'s still single. Yeah, it's shocker. But the moment she saw Peter, she became a believer in love at first sight. He was perfect. Then fate stepped in. His life. He's in a coma. Oh, I was going to marry him. Who's she? She's his fiance. No, no, no. Peter's engaged. She saved his life. That's right. You haven't met Jack yet. Welcome to the family. Oh, thank you. It's funny. My brother never mentioned you. Which one of the three studios was Peter's favorite? Curly. Curly. Ha! He's everybody's favorite. Fact is, you're not really Peter's type. All right. Whose type am I? I like blondes. You like brunettes. Can I say, Peter, I was never envious of anything that you had until now. Caravan Pictures presents Sandra Bullock. These are your husband's things. Not my husband! Your fiance. Bill Pullman. She drives you so crazy, you don't know whether to hug her or just arm wrestle her. Peter Gallagher. He's awake! Your family's here, Peter. In a film about love at second sight. Who are you? Sleeping. Shouldn't have left the booth. Oh, shouldn't have left the booth. Shouldn't have left the booth. Greetings, dear listener. It's Hit Factory back once again. This marks our first installment of a month-long celebration we're calling Sandra Palooza. A Sandra-bration. This episode and our next three will all be about films starring the peerless Sandra Bullock. Today, we're talking about her 1995 romantic comedy, While You Were Sleeping. But before we get too far into that, we should take a moment to share some things happening on the factory floor. We're officially on Patreon, where we'll be offering monthly episodes and content exclusively to our patrons. It's the only way to get the full Hit Factory experience, so sign up today at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Mm, Sold me on Mm, that one. Love it. We will put the link in the show description. On that same subject... From now until the end of August, that's August 31, 2020, we are donating every dollar from every Patreon subscription to the Conscious Kids COVID-19 Rent Relief for Families Fund to support families who don't have equitable access to resources, largely BIPOC families who are getting hit hardest by the fallout of the pandemic at the moment. We're aiming for $1,000 raised for the fund by the end of the month, so if you like what you hear, want to support us and support these families... Please subscribe if you have the means. You get cool shit, extra stuff, exclusive content. Let's talk while you were sleeping. Lots to talk about with it. So much to talk about. Uh, some, I'm going to hit you with some quick stats. Some really numbers. Quick. Some numbers. Get those arms going. Here we go. It is directed by John Turtletob, uh, who is coming off of the success of 93's Cool Runnings. Let's just, let's take a moment. Bless. Bless that movie. Like, I think one of the first movies I remember 
very forcefully crying to. Oh my gosh. What part did you cry at? At the, <laughs> at at the, the very, very at end? At the end when they pick up the sled. And they carry it across and the finish carry, line? Just, oh, it kills me even to think about it. Yeah. I feel like everybody stumbled across that movie in some capacity, but it, I don't rem- I don't know if I know anyone who actively saw it in theaters. It was always on Disney Channel or it was on VHS. And I think most people our age saw it on syndication on the Disney Channel because it was always on. Right. But everyone's seen that movie. Yeah. There's not a person our age I know who has not seen Cool Runnings. It's, it's solid. If we find one, they're going to come on the show and they're going to talk Cool Runnings with us. Or maybe I don't want those people anywhere near me. <laughs> don't, don't come near me. Uh, but John Turtletop did Cool Runnings. He followed this film up with the John Travolta vehicle phenomenon, and he also directed uh, National Treasure with Nicolas Cage, as well as its sequel, National Treasure Two: Book of Secrets. Book of Secrets. I forgot that he did National Treasures. Yes. Twice. While You Were Sleeping has a pretty knockout 90s cast. We already mentioned it is part of Sandra Palooza, so it is Sandra Bullock in the lead role. Bill Pullman's here, Peter Gallagher, Peter Boyle is in this one, and Glynis Johns, who you net recognized from Mary Poppins. Recognized immediately as the mother from Mary Poppins. Do you want to know something fascinating? Formidable, formidable actress in the mid, mid-20th century. And a great musical performer. Yes. Glynis Johns is... Currently aged 96 years old, will be turning 97 in October. Oh my gosh, Glennis! She is still kicking. She's a powerhouse. She's a powerhouse. We did not discuss this before getting into recording, but uh, I did remark while we were watching the film on the name of the director of photography. You not only remarked, you attempted several times to land squarely... The pause button on his name so that you could point it out to me and it's, say it. It's scream qu- it <laughs> at the top of your lungs. It's quite a name. The name of the director of photography, cinematographer for this film, is Fadon Papa Michael. A I, name I will forever curse. <laughs> I think I'm saying it right. I, I have think, no idea. I think you are. Anyways, Fadon Papa Michael. Fadon Papa Michael. Um Who actually, when I did some research, turns out to be probably the most famous person on the production, not in front of the camera, by a long shot. Okay. Fadon Papa Michael uh, has lensed several films for notable directors, Wim Wenders, Alexander Payne, and James Mangold. Okay. He has done... Papa Michael. Papa Michael. Coming in hot. He did Identity, Walk the Line, and Ford v. Ferrari. For James Mangold. Excuse me. Yes. He is also uh, the cinematographer on The Descendants, Downsizing, and Nebraska for Alexander Payne. In. Nebraska, by the way, got him an Oscar nomination. Papa. So on this 1995 John Turtletop directed romantic comedy starring Sandra Bullock is an Oscar nominated cinematographer. Who would have known? Not me. But that is really the extent of the stats on this movie. There is nothing particularly extraordinary about the things going on here. There's no... I don't know. I think this movie is extraordinary in the sense that it kind of officially launched Sandra Bullock into her romantic comedy genre work. Another thing that it did 
reunited Sandra Bullock with one of her recurring co-stars of the 1990s. Who? Mass Transit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We have a municipal bus. We've got the L lines for CTA in Chicago. Mm Mm-hmm. A cruise ship well, in that's, 1997. that's predicated on the existence of the first. Right. It's so. a sequel. It <laughs> is. But throughout the 90s, mass transit. I'm going to give you some stats. You're always throwing numbers at me. Give me some stats on like this Like a thing. pompous dude. Like Michael Lewis over here. Knows math. I'm going to give you some stats. Tell me. In the 90s, Sandra did a total of guess how many movies? Uh, from 1990 to 1999, Sandra Bullock did... 10 movies, one a year. No, double that. You're kidding. She did approximately 20 movies. There was like one short in there and maybe like one, I don't know, weird. One Wrangler like commercial. Do- documentary or something. <laughs> she did She did 19 feature length films from 92 to 99. She started with When the Party's Over. Can't say that I've seen it. No, but also the name of an excellent Billie Eilish song. Great. There you go. Don't care for her music. Maybe inspired by the 92 film. Potentially. Ended the decade in 99 with Forces of Nature. Another great rom-com. I have not seen Forces of Nature. Well, you're gonna. Good thing I'm on a 90s movie podcast. And good thing we're in the midst of Sandra Palooza. Although, that might not make this cut. We'll see. Anyways, I think what we should get into it at a certain point is talk about one of my favorite things about her and something that I've remarked about, which is that she is so skilled in so many disparate genres, more so than any other leading lady, right. I would potentially argue. She's kind of singular in the sense that she transitioned really readily and easily between romantic comedies action thrillers like Speed, and then more serious dramatic fare. More serious dramatic fare. And if you look at just her 90s slice, we're not even talking what she did in the early aughts or after that. That is very apparent. I'm just going to read you. I'm going to read you the 19 line items let's, I have here. Let's riff. Let Show me some of Sandra's output. 92, and I will be doing arms. 92, when the party's over. 92, love potion number nine have seen it it is watchable is it better than the first eight love potions that i can't say (laughs) 93 the vanishing 93 the thing called love 93 demolition man 93 fire on the amazon 93 Mm. wrestling ernest hemingway you heard it right folks she did five movies in 1993 that's that's some work. That in and of itself makes her one of my faves. Hardest working woman in show business? Potentially. To rival Dr. Cruz? We'll go there. We'll have a discourse. Okay. 94, speed. Also 94, who do I gotta kill? Question mark. I don't know that one. Me neither. What a 95, question. while you were sleeping. 95, the net. <laughs> 96, two if by sea, known in the UK as stolen hearts. 90- why why the, the discrepancy? I don't know. Ask the Brits. Okay. 96, a time to kill. Great one. We talk about a time to kill a lot on this It's going to come up. It's top-notch 90s movies <laughs> is, is what I'm saying. 
96, In Love and War. 97, Hold On to Your Hats, Speed 2, Cruise Control. Cruise Control, Jason Patrick, Tour de Force. 98, Hope Floats. Okay. I can't say that that title without laughing. 99, no, 98, Practical Magic. All right. Hello. Great one. She's finishing strong here. In 98, she was the voice of Miriam in The Prince of Egypt. The great cast Another star-studded cast. And in 99, Forces of Nature. That's, that's some output. That is prolific, to say the least. My point in bringing this up is that even if you just look at this list, there is romantic comedy, there is thriller, there is action-adventure. Different from thriller, we should say. Different, different genres. Different genres. They go in different places at the blockbuster. There are some slightly more serious romantic movies. There's some dramas. She did a lot. And in, in each of those categories, she has at least one very successful movie. And she's like, she's bringing some texture. In terms of this movie, a word that I see getting thrown around a lot is formula. Yes. I could not escape when reading about this movie, whether it was reviews, synopses, Rotten Tomatoes even, everyone kept coming back to how utterly formulaic this movie is. However, most people still rewarded this a really positive score, letter grade, what have you. And in watching it, I actually found myself enjoying it quite a bit. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Sandra Bullock in the 90s, just in general, is so fucking magnetic. She's totally charismatic. I found this mentioned several times in some contemporary reviews as well. All of them mention the formula and then have a but and proceed to talk about why they actually, despite the formula, enjoyed the movie. It was the same sensation that I had with the movie where as soon as it started, I knew exactly what I was in for. We know where this thing is going from minute one all the way through minute 100. Totally. But by minute 45... I realized that I was transfixed. I realized that I cared about the movie and the characters enough mm-hmm. to see it through to the end. And I wasn't watching the clock. I wasn't waiting for things to keep going. I didn't feel like there was anything superfluous happening. And there were a couple of moments which we will talk about that I was genuinely kind of applauding the things that it did to keep the story and the narrative moving forward and advancing in kind of a propulsive manner. Even when... It's drawing out the inevitable, right? Exactly. But that's the case with most Mm rom-coms. When you start these kinds of movies, you know where the movie's going to end. Unless they decide to be subversive, this one is not one of those kinds of films. But to be fair, most romantic comedies in the 90s were the formula. They were defining the formula. That's when the formula came to be. Right. Romantic comedies in the 90s. Like, the reason a formula exists at all for anyone to critique is because so many romantic comedies in this decade followed this same structure. Right. This was These were the chefs making the sauce. It was the mise en place. It was the mise en place. Of rom-coms. I'm not sure that that necessarily applies. No, it doesn't. I just wanted to say it. I'm going to give a, syn- a brief synopsis of the movie because we're, we're already in it. Please. Sandra Bullock is a shy public transit worker token taker, uh, sees a man every day. She looks at him and admires him from afar. They don't quite ever interact. He's always sort of looking down, whatever. 
One day, she sees this man getting mugged. In addition to these youths mugging him, they push him onto the train tracks. Okay. <laughs> and she rushes over to save him. She sets some shit uh, for some comic relief and then rolls him out of the way just as the express train is about to hit the two of them. Saving his life. Saving his life. He ends up in a coma. Hilarity ensues when a nurse mistakes her for his fiance. Right. His family rushes in. They all are of the same belief because this, that, and the other happened. And the rest of the movie is basically her operating under this guise of being this man's fiance, a man who she has seen and admired every single day. Right. Whilst she becomes enmeshed with the family in various ways. One way in particular is with Coma Man's brother, Bill Pullman, a.k.a. Jack, in the movie, who she inevitably falls in love with. And in the end, everything works itself out because the movie does a really good job of showing us all the reasons that Coma Man, a.k.a. Peter Gallagher, is like a terrible human, so we shouldn't feel bad for him for getting you know, jilted in this way. And Sandra Bullock's character, Lucy, and Bill Pullman's character, Jack, marry. The end. It's interesting that you talk about the Peter Gallagher character as being reprehensible because one of the things that I noted in talking about things that made this movie compelling to me was the way in which they managed to juggle and kind of flip-flop this idea of sympathetic and morally bankrupt on a dime at the right moment for us to hope for his success and hope that he connects with Lucy or has the audience wishing ill upon him. For the purposes of the synopsis, I was reductive. In talking about the movie more substantively, I agree with you. They don't make it cookie cutter that no. he's just like blatantly an asshole and, you know, we're supposed to hate him. Right. Well, they and they find a good way to peel back layers and reveal things about his character and about his personality at very specific times to make us say, huh, mm -hmm. or, uh. Totally. I think to your earlier point of like the movie being by and large formulaic, but despite that still being entertaining and enjoyable, that is very much one of those elements that adds to the enjoyability. And that doesn't make the movie boring. They could have just as easily made him reprehensible through and through, just been like a rich lawyer dude with a skyline apartment and a shitty girlfriend that he's proposed to and like have that be the end of it. But instead they give us some endearing moments when he's like remembering the ABCs and proving to himself that he doesn't have amnesia. Right. That is one of the things that I think the movie does well is that it, it takes the elements of the formula and just gives them a little bit more seasoning. Right, exactly. It's just taking all of the staples, all the basics of this thing, but really, really waxing that coat of paint on it and making it something that is, is fun to engage with. Again, I was not expecting to enjoy this movie as much as I did when I came into it. Neither was Roger Ebert, apparently. <laughs> well, you hear, you know, While You Were Sleeping, 1995 romantic comedy starring Sandra Bullock, who we all love. We love now. She was still fledgling in her career. I mean, I shouldn't say that. She was, she was early enough in her career that she didn't have, you know, 
She wasn't like the big bankable name that she is today. But she's so charismatic in this and we love her so much that, yeah, the movie just kind of goes. It starts, it ends. I am not mad that I experienced it and I don't feel like <laughs> full of... Four stars. Four I am st- not mad that I experienced not, it. <laughs> that, that's my review. We can end the show now. Not mad about seeing this not movie. Not mad that I watched it. No, but there is some more interesting things to get into in terms of what the film is kind of presenting to us that makes it an interesting artifact of the 1990s. Tell me more. Let's well, talk about it. One of the things that we were remarking on when we watched this is the way that the film sort of glosses over and even in a lot of ways kind of beautifies a lot of what in the real world would be classified as sociopathy. Just utterly maddening manipulation and craziness. And not just in the central kind of high concept lie that is told on behalf of Lucy, right? It's not just, oh, I made up this thing about being Coma Man's fiance, and now I have to keep playing that. But it is the ways in which she starts to conspire with one of the Well, he's the godfather, so he's not technically related. But the way she starts to conspire with one of the other characters to keep the secret and perpetuate it to lie to a family. And the way that he wants to keep the secret, right? He has his own motives for wanting to protect the family and feeling like she's really good for them. And so, yes, let's keep lying because the lie is worse than telling the truth. Right. The truth is worse than the lie itself. Another one that we see play out is... The family business, Callahan and Son, formerly Sons. Peter Gallagher was like, nope, I'm going to go make bank as a lawyer. Going to go make my money as a lawyer, lose a testicle, and marry an ice queen. Yep. They acquire furniture from the estates of the recently deceased. Throughout the movie, there are very casual conversations about the profitability of the recently deceased. The family routinely checks the obituaries. And when they read the names off, they're like, oh, that one finally kicked it. She's got a she's got a good uh, kitchen yeah. kitchen set. We can go and get that. It's wild. It's very dark. It is. You see these people profiting off of other people's pain and misery in a way that is played for laughs, but is also kind of central to their relationships and conversations. It all becomes very dark. It's a weird... It's a weird thing. I don't quite get why that's what they did. Well, and it's one of those things a lot like most of these kind of higher concept romantic comedies where the central lie or the seasoning of the plot is something sociopathic that is presented to us as quirkiness, Mm -hmm. right? It's meant to be laughable, kitschy, silly. But when you observe it now in a slightly more... I don't know, moribund, I guess, world. The whole thing just seems kind of desolate and kind of dark in a way that the movie doesn't ever want to accept and actually kind of shields you from. Makes for weird viewing. It makes for weird viewing in 2020. I'll give you that. Yeah. I think if we're talking about something we've brought up about movies in the 90s before, which is that, you know, the backdrop for movie making and movie going at the time was a relatively stable mid to upper class America that was like kind of having some good times, right? They were having great times. Having some great times, being good consumers. Business was booming in the US. The economy was doing well. 
And for a certain movie-going audience, like, suspension of disbelief was a part of their everyday existence. Absolutely. So, like, not a hard, not a hard leap. I also think, like, in the context of a romantic comedy where if you're seeing something in in or around the genre of comedy, there is a certain amount of ridiculousness that the audience is already not only expecting, but ready to accept. And that's why so often when you see romantic comedies do really ridiculous and otherwise dark things, that it doesn't feel that way. You're kind of like already there for the game. I think in this one, you're even more set up for that because you know going into it, this movie is about a man in a fucking coma getting lied to, right? Right. So you're already like on a level of acceptance of like kind of dark stuff that you may not be in another one. Right. You, you bring up an interesting point though, is that on paper, this film plays out with a considerably sort of darker tone and atmosphere, very much like what you know, we'd classify traditionally as a black comedy. Mm-hmm. This movie doesn't ever seem to own that. It seems to actually defy any sense that it should be the kind of bleak, dark comedy that it feels like it was intended to be. Yep. And plays up all of the more, I'm going to say the word again, formulaic tropes of romantic comedies. Yes. And not only that, but actively works to distract and dissipate the darkness and the bleakness via the quirkiness that you're talking about. And not just the quirkiness of the leading lady, but I think like the surrounding characters as well. The family is meant to be super oddball and kind of funny and weird, right? They're all, Roger Ebert describes them as moving in a unit, like always in a pack. It's it's like a pinball game watching all of them have their big kind of uh, ensemble dialogue scenes. But that's, that is a distraction, right? You're kind of paying attention to the swirl and to the the funny dynamics that are bouncing off between the family members and the kind of slapstick stuff that's happening in some of the extraneous frames, like I pointed out to you, the kid that just one time in the movie falls the newspaper delivery boy that is riding down the sidewalk and right. just launches a newspaper and falls clean off his bike. Right, he seems to flip on like a patch of ice or something and just eats complete shit. Eats shit. And it never comes back. It's just a, a weird little coda to one scene and an introduction to another. And there's some of that stuff in Cool Runnings too. There's a very concerted effort for levity in this movie. Yes. And I think part of that is a byproduct of what we're talking about, which is if you focus too long on this thing... Don't sit with it. <laughs> it will start to feel... A little unreasonable Mm -hmm. or it'll start to feel a little reprehensible from that moral compass that you're trying to kind of put aside or to to silence and and subdue a little bit while you watch this you almost wonder though what would have happened with this movie in the hands of a director who is known for doing things that are a little bit more bleak but also having that kind of like levity and humor and funniness to them would be a different movie and probably wouldn't have gotten gotten made in 1995 maybe not I think I just think of like a, an Adams family type situation, but with this family who are like eagerly awaiting the death of their uh, their neighbors and but the and macabre elements of of that are built into the characters, right? You're right. It's a different 
they live in fucking coffins. Like, <laughs> right. But that's what almost makes this funny, right? Is that it's it's supposed to be this really down to earth, casual, happy go lucky family who come from a little bit of wealth, but are like self made and have a good business and mm-hmm. have one son who's like the working class guy who yep. wears, you know, the worker jackets and the Timberlands and and you know makes makes rocking chairs with his hands. And it's then hot. It is hot. It's hot. And you've got. Then the soft one who went off to the big city to go get his lawyer in on and sleep with Buys ladies married noses women. and exactly has vases filled with blue water and marbles. <laughs> that just is there to be knocked over. That is again another good staple of '90s aesthetic: is the blue water and marble vases with weird plastic flowers in them. As is on the other side of that spectrum, the overstuffed floral embroidered sofas and chairs which i have talked about previously (laughs) yes which we get to see both of in the same scene in the same scene it is quite a time i think one of the reasons this movie works so well is the obvious one that everyone talks about but i think it's important for us to spend a minute on it and that's sandra bullock we're talking about the fact that this movie has some sort of darker elements and is formulaic all of these things that would maybe otherwise work against it to either make it boring or feel odd or not as enjoyable as as it turns out to be. And I think a lot of that has to do with Sandra and her performance as Lucy, which you could shrug off as any old unassuming leading lady in a romantic comedy, but it's it's a little bit more than that. She's unassuming, yes, and shy and sort of, you know, doesn't know her own power, her own beauty and the charisma that she has that other people seem to recognize. Everyone falls in love with her immediately. Joe Jr., a.k.a. Jackie April, a.k.a. Michael Rispoli. But this this role in this movie as the landlord's son is, as we mentioned, probably the thing that got him the role of Jackie April. He doesn't have a Chicago accent. He just has a New York Italian accent. He has a New Jersey accent and he is in tracksuits the entire side, the entire time. So they found a way, somehow somebody subconsciously put together the hospital aesthetic of this movie and Joe Jr. and said, I'm going to make a character that is Joe Jr. in a hospital (laughs) and put it in the best Drama of and the we're, 90s and early we're cast We're casting Rispoli. There you go. He already had the role. That's how it happened. But he is just so taken with Lucy and, you know, tries um, very, very uh, comedically and clownishly to win her heart over and over again. Saul, Jack Warden, who is the godfather. People may also know him from many, many things, one of which being All the President's Men. And 12 Angry Men. And 12 Angry Men. All the men movies. He's a juror in that, and I only, only realized that in the last few years. He just immediately sees what Sandra's character has and sees that she is a force of good for the family, which is why he wants to perpetuate the lie. Bill Pullman's character, Jack is immediately taken with her, albeit he is suspicious. But all of these people see the thing that she doesn't, which again, in and of itself, is a very formulaic thing about a leading lady in a romantic comedy. She needs to learn to love herself too and see her true value. She has to be, she has to move from being the ugly duckling to the beautiful swan that she is. And part of that comes from the way she is empowered by 
the love of people around her when she finally has family, when she finally has a suitor, when she finally has people acknowledging outside of her usual sphere how wonderful she is. This is what I was going to bring up. The thing that I think makes that performance a little bit more textured than the formula that it's sitting in, in her performance, is she plays the role of a woman who has lost family and the pain that comes with that and why that pain may lead to an existence that feels lonely and scary at times. She plays it really believably and earnestly. It's just more stuff. There's a little bit more stuff there than there are in other similar roles right. in female leads for romantic comedies. And it would normally be a thing. These kinds of movies for a lot of actresses are easy money makers, right? They kind of phone it in or the roles are given to, frankly, actresses who are beautiful and charismatic, but also don't have a lot of substance to offer in terms of like deep performances sometimes. But right away in this movie, you see a lot of work being done on her behalf, even in the voiceover. There's kind of this introductory sepia-toned flashback where she kind of gives you a sense of who her character Lucy is, her upbringing, her relationship with her father, why she has the, the worldview and perspective that she does about life and love. And even in her voiceover, there is a lot of choppy kind of stumbling and uhs and ums. It's and, very conversational. And she's playing it as if she is nervously telling somebody on a date, like sitting across from them at a table. Yeah, right away, even before you see her, you hear her and there is something inviting, familiar, down to earth about her that immediately makes it relatable and engaging. You are on her side before you ever see her face. She's talking to the audience like we're a friend of hers. We're in a conversation with her before the movie actually even really gets going. And I think that that is part of the reason why you feel so endeared to her is that connection is made really early on and it's done so in a more meaningfully way than we would see normally, which is like, Close up, woman waking up in bed. We see her morning routine. She's fumbling around in her dress and like has her hair up in a silly bun and brushing her teeth. Those are easy aesthetic ways to make someone relatable. And this movie avoids them because they actually have somebody who's charismatic enough to just be relatable in the way she conveys herself. And I think of a lot of of the conversational feel to her delivery, not just in the narration, but also in her line delivery and her dialogue with other characters and that sort of like very accessible comfortable and this person is genuinely good and a person you want to be a friend with that's all Sandra that was not written into the lines right like she is the one doing that right the words may be there but that delivery is her having done speed the year before totally different backdrop totally different genre a lot of physical and like body acting and a lot of like yelling and just very fireworks performance and she also has to be a certain level of charming because we have to feel for her right. in this situation that she she's is in. the protagonist as well as a romantic lead in that yes. movie because she is the female character playing against keanu But she does that really, really well. And she's able to juggle all of those different things all at once, which is why she's such a compelling leading woman in this movie, which is Mm -hmm. 
oh, she can be the love interest, but she is also the main character and the person who is orchestrating the plot and being and all it, kinds of things at once. And it's the thing that enables the audience to not be raising their eyebrow the entire time and shaking their head or wagging their fingers, right? At the lie that's being perpetuated. Right. It's her likability and it's her charisma and her substance that makes us root for her despite the fact that this is kind of a bleak, sinister thing that's happening. There's another thing like that that presents itself throughout the movie. And I bring this up because of course I do. It's about the healthcare system. <laughs> Listen, you can't talk about comas without talking about healthcare. Well, there's Not a, in 2020. There's a couple of different things here. And I'm just going to get out of the way and give like a two-minute complainy statement about this. The DNC, that's the committee, not the convention, mm -hmm. uh, their delegates voted just last week that they would not make Medicare for All. In the middle of a global pandemic. Part of their platform moving forward. Uh, in that same vote was also uh, an amendment for legalizing marijuana, which was also voted down. Mm. But that's a whole other thing about the criminalization of the drug and yep. incarceration rates disproportionately affecting people of color, but I digress. You digress. The thing about this movie that is essential to its plot, but also really devastating when you think about it again through a 2020 lens is not just the coma situation. This movie would be a very different movie if Peter Gallagher's character wasn't a wealthy lawyer who had access to all of the best medicine in Chicago to make sure that he was taken care of and came out of this coma. That plug would have been pulled two hours in, man. But another element of the movie is the reason for Lucy, Sandra Bullock's character's current predicament and her current stasis that she needs to be shaken out of in the movie. She has a conversation with Jack Warden's character, Saul, at mm -hmm. a certain point where she explains that the reason that she works the CTA, the reason she lives alone, the reason she doesn't have a family and is so taken by the Callahan family is because... She lost her mom very young, and then her father had a medical condition, and he went through some sort of trial operations. She was He was at a research hospital. Research, says, that's what it is. Research is always expensive. Right. And she mentions she quit school and dropped out and got the job at the CTA to start paying for her dad's medical bills, mm -hmm. and then one day he just got tired of the research, and passed away. Mm -hmm. And then she just stayed alone, presumably working all the time because of the trauma of enduring, you know, a, a pretty devastating amount of probably pain and suffering on behalf of her dad, but also because she didn't pursue her dreams because she had to inherit the medical debts of her father. Yep. And it's never really addressed in the movie beyond that. And it seems like she's in a place where she is actually able to very quickly and easily move out of that place financially at least mm -hmm. when she's ready to because she you know she books trips and she's saving up job. for a trip to florence but it's a really really somber thing that yeah. they don't give much of a moment to again is said in passing and interestingly enough is a thing that for audiences in the era and even now like if you're watching it with a less scrupulous eye you hear saul say oh that's really expensive and Lucy say, yeah, I had to drop out of school and get a job to take care of him and acknowledge that as, and just say, oh, that figures. Yeah. 
And it's kind of fucked up that we do that. Oh, well, we've, this is why the Medicare for all conversation exists. It's that we've been trained as a society to expect that healthcare, not just basic needs, but life-saving healthcare is meant to be expensive, right. is meant to put you into debt. That is an active, constant, cyclical decision that is made on the part of people and systems that are in power. It does not have to be that way. But if you grow up in America, you grow up thinking that, oh, this is a fixed cost. This is a thing that just is. Medicine and healthcare just is expensive. The end. You don't investigate that further. Right. And people in 1995 certainly weren't investigating that further. They definitely weren't thinking about it. One of the things that I find so strange about it, not strange, it makes sense. But one of the things that came up for me while watching it is that mm -hmm. it's never interrogated. And there is this explicit and deliberate dichotomy between her experience with the healthcare system creating this much turmoil and the current situation where she doesn't see any of those things becoming a factor for this family or for the person who she is lying about being engaged to. It's so true. It never comes up. They never even think about it. I never even thought about it. <laughs> it was a thing that I thought of immediately. Like, it's like, this is really weird. Like, and not to say that the character should be resentful and say like, oh, fuck these people because they don't have to suffer to save their son. But interesting that that thing comes up deliberately as a way of characterizing Lucy but never comes up as a point of contention or... Contrast. Right, or, or of uh, personal upheaval for her in any mm -hmm. way that she has to work through. It's something that she's very readily and, and immediately able to, to overcome and, and work past. But a lot of that kind of stuff happens in this movie in terms of the inherent classist kind of nature of things where Lucy is portrayed as kind of broke, kind of poor, kind of schlubby. And then you have this family that's pretty well-to-do. They're still very approachable, very relatable, but they have what seems to be a very successful business. They have a big house in the Chicago suburbs. They don't have to work during Christmas time or the entire week leading up to New Year's. Mm -hmm. They're able to support their son who's in a coma in the hospital. The grandma clearly has money. She's in a new hat every time we see her. Yes, she's got pearls on. She's got a fancy little flashbulb camera that she carries around yeah. with her. It's just an interesting thing. And there is sort of a, a level of the, that class disparity approached in the way that Lucy views herself, but it's never outright stated. And there's a moment in the movie where there's sort of a confrontation between Bill Pullman's character and Sandra Bullock Jack and Lucy, where he is trying to make amends and trying to apologize for the way that he's treated her and the way that he's misjudged her and been skeptical of the reality of her story, but also just says, you're not really Peter's type in reference to his comatose brother. Mm -hmm. And she asks, whose type am I? And he doesn't say anything. And the implication is that He's afraid to tell her that you're my type. Mm -hmm. They're both working class folks. Right. But what she perceives it as is I'm nobody's type and nobody wants me. Mm -hmm. But that level of sort of inherited intrinsic devaluing of herself feels like it comes from the fact that she never feels worthy of or good enough for the family uh -huh. and for Peter specifically because mm -hmm. she sees his wealth. She sees his success. She sees the tight knit nature of of this family and what they do. 
and feels less than. And some of those are societal things. Some of those are the elements of her lack of relationship and the way that she lives. But there's also this weird thing where there is the idea that she is just a lowly worker who isn't worthwhile. This movie doesn't have a trace of class consciousness. Right. And and even when it comes close to it, those traces of class consciousness are wrapped as and presented to us as cultural consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. The disparities between Peter, coma man, and Lucy, CTA worker, are largely characterized as differences in their identity or differences in their character, their personality, not structural economic circumstances. And I think that that's a thing that I'm sort of hovering around is that Like you said, the movie has not a whiff of class consciousness. And what it presents to us is really not so much the disparities saying one good, one bad, but one should be aspired to. Mm -hmm. A lot like what we talk about with 90s movies at large, this level of opulence, this level of success and wealth that can be acquired through whatever means. Peter's wealth and his family's wealth are seen as things that are attractive and things that Lucy should aspire to and desire in a certain regard. And it's the reason why we are sort of inherently supposed to adopt Lucy's desire along with her for Peter and for his success and his charm and his financial presentation of himself. Mm -hmm. Precisely. She even speaks disparagingly about her circumstances herself. She kind of says flippantly and acidically, you know, I'm a single woman who works for the CTA and I come home to a cat every day Mm -hmm. or something along those lines. Right. The movie is presenting that as an aesthetic difference and at the same time showing us, by contrast, this other thing that she is supposed to want and be and launch toward. And it doesn't just show us the object of her desire. It actually contrasts it not just in her own circumstances, but with a direct suitor in Joe Jr., mm-hmm. right? Jackie April. Yep. Who is an undignified, unrefined, sloppy kind of character who is the alternative to someone like a Peter if she doesn't continue to lie. Totally. If she doesn't fake it till she makes it. And if she doesn't try to manifest that identity that makes her worthy of those people, she's going to be stuck in her slum with this slob. It's kind of wild that it is, it's there. Like, <laughs> But it makes sense when you think about the ethos of the 90s political space, particularly 95, which if we recall is a time when Clinton era politics were telling us that you are as good as how hard you work. And this is also reflected back in characters in movies who are presented to us as slobs, like Joe Jr. in this movie. He's not presented as unsuccessful because of his circumstances, because he grew up in a bad neighborhood and didn't have access to X, Y, and Z. He's presented to us as... Uh, unsuccessful and an unviable suitor because he's meant to be kind of like a jack-off who's a little bit lazy and cuts corners and kind of just fumbles around. And he represents in the film, I think, a certain level of 
lack of ambition on behalf of Lucy's character. She is someone who we've already seen is exceptional and desirable and worthy of the things that a higher class has. She just doesn't have them because of circumstances. Again, trying to characterize her as the kind of person who would likely watch this movie and and, and find this kind of thing relatable. Mm-hmm. And doing the thing sort of intrinsically that the 90s at large did societally, which is showed us both the thing we could strive for and showed us the thing that we would have if we didn't strive for it. It was total scare tactic. Right. And it's a thing that we talk about a lot in terms of a middle class fearing lower class people because they are constantly met with the threat of becoming that themselves. Mm-hmm. And it manifests itself in two specific identities and two specific relationships in a way that I would not have noticed in 1995. I do think it's interesting, though, that this movie plays with the cookie cutter, single white female who lives alone, has a cat, eats TV dinners like she's supposed to be pathetic. But I think it actually gives us that cinematic stereotype a bit more lovingly than I've seen other romantic comedies do so before. Agreed. It's not a thing that she needs to be pulled out of. It's it's, it's not... a thing that makes her charming and lovable. Right. And again, I think that's more Sandra's doing and the way that she plays it. And the the deafness of Turtle Taub here, I think, is that he is giving us a little bit more stuff to play with, like like we've said previously. And this is one of those things where it could have been very easily written off as it's pathetic, we feel sorry for mm. her, but we don't ever really feel sorry for her. We just are endeared toward her, which is a very different feeling. Right. I think specifically about the juxtaposition between this movie and like a miscongeniality mm-hmm. where a lot of her tendencies are played up for their sort of repellent nature. Mm -hmm. She is not well-groomed and she never does her hair and she doesn't do makeup and she like doesn't wear deodorant and she like snorts when she laughs. (laughs) And some of those things begin to define her as a charming person. But for the most part, they are things that she needs to abandon and shed in order to become the more realized version of herself. In this film, there is by and large a level of stasis to her character qualities Mm -hmm. and the thing that she really needs to overcome is her fear of stepping out of the circumstances that keep her locked into a job with no one around Mm -hmm. right it's just about finding that human connection and taking a leap into the unknown a little bit that she has to work through but she gets to preserve a lot of her character and a lot of her familiar tendencies absolutely one of the things i was noticing on this watch that really speaks to that is her final climactic monologue at the altar when she finally comes clean to the family and admits that she's been lying to them and talks about the circumstances under which it happened and then proceeds to talk about why. I was so much more moved by that final speech from her than I think I remember being previously Mm. and realized that she actually hadn't changed. She fundamentally was still the same person. And that's what I think made that that speech so moving is that she wasn't talking about like, I've grown in all these ways and, you know, now I'm this new person. She was simply expressing to this family that they they reminded her what it 
felt like to be a part of a family and that that was something that really moved her and moved her to do some reprehensible things. But not that she was coming clean and talking about how she had, you know, been changed into this different person and that they had helped her, you know, conquer all these fears and do all these things. It was a little bit more tamped down than that. Right. And I think that's why I was more taken by it. And it does speak to what you're saying that she doesn't she doesn't change fundamentally in the movie, which I think is is nice. That's a nice arc or lack thereof to have because it's something safe and familiar that audiences can latch into immediately and not feel like they're being taken on too much of a ride they get to end with the same person that they liked at the beginning with a few less barriers in their way and it also i think paints a picture that she's not a person who had to change in the first place which a lot of other lesser more formulaic more sticking to the formula of the formula rom-coms would have done where they're telling us see this person she's flawed she's got to change love will change her one of the things in this movie that i thought the script and the film itself handled really well up until it didn't (laughs) was the ever-present threat of the real fiance ashley bartlett bacon All three names. Right. And so they introduce this character through conversation and dialogue and voicemails before we see her in the final act of the movie. She's first brought up by the sister Mm -hmm. in a conversation when Lucy is first introducing herself as Peter's fiance when he's in a coma. And then she calls Peter's apartment and lets him know I'm coming home from... Lisbon and I want to marry you. I've changed my mind. I will marry you. I decided actually I will do that thing. There's another fun moment where a new doorman, they'll hop at the apartment complex where Peter lives, doesn't recognize Lucy because of course he doesn't. But then Bill Pullman's character says, this is Peter Callahan's fiance. And the doorman says, they told me about her, sir. She's scary. Tell me about it. (laughs) And it plays up this really dramatic, entertaining, interesting confrontation with this woman Mm -hmm. that never happens. Yep. Like, she... It, like, kind of does? It kind of does, but there is, like, a moment where she and Lucy share an elevator and then get off on separate floors. Ashley Bartlett Bacon confronts Peter who tells her by this point, oh, I'm, I'm awake and I've actually been really wooed by this other woman, uh, go away. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't really come back until she steps in to object to the wedding betwixt Lucy and Peter in the last act of the movie, which everyone is objecting to. It's it's played up for laughs in mm-hmm. a moment where we're meant to understand that she's gross and Peter's gross because she's actually married and all this mess of a thing. But I was so waiting for her to become a formidable opponent and hurdle for Lucy to conquer and and for the film to have to engage with. And I feel like they didn't quite stick the dismount. I don't think they wanted to. No, they didn't. I don't think, again, that feels more true to the formula that this movie is operating in to a certain extent, where the evil, blonde, bitchy, you know, plastic surgeried 
gorgeous supermodel foe would have this dramatic confrontation with Sandra Bullock's character. But they don't do that. They keep us really focused on Lucy and they keep us really focused on the relationship that we re- that we are really pulling for, which is Lucy and Jack. And I'm actually okay with that. It's not realistic by any stretch of the imagination, but I also think a lot of the the work that's being done on these secondary and tertiary characters is there to just say like, these people make the thing that ends up happening in the end okay. Right. And it certainly advances the plot. It acts as the carrot on the end of the stick in a lot of those uh, interstitial moments between character connections that we're actually seeing, the voicemail and the references here and there, and you know this ever-present looming thread of something that's going to make the whole thing fall apart, that's going to kill the charade. I liked all of that. And you're right, I, I don't feel like completely betrayed by the fact that it didn't happen. It still winds up, you know, escalating in a really entertaining way, mm-hmm. but they got me. And that's the thing about this movie that I think is important to continue to come back to, which is I did not expect to be gotten by this movie. I thought I knew what I was in for. In a lot of ways, I was correct about what I was in for. But by the end of it, there was something about the power of it cumulatively that made it engaging, that made me like it, and that made it genuinely kind of emotional at the end when you're happy to see the characters get what they want. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, a thing that is so inherent in 90s movies that we don't always get today, right? Like there is actually a need now because of that level of satisfaction that we get on behalf of 90s movies to pull fast ones on audiences and to kind of fleece them into thinking something's going to happen and then not. You see this with even the rom-com formula. Like I think of the breakup with Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston as a thing that needed to subvert it. But one of the nice things about this is that it is cake, right? It's a thing that we can eat and enjoy and savor and when it's done it's done and i was happy that i spent time with it it's what did you say i'm not mad that i watched it i'm not (laughs) mad that i watched it and that is i think the highest mark you can give to an oft like relatively forgotten relic of the 90s i think that this movie sure has a a favorable kind of little place in in people's hearts who engage within the 90s. I mm-hmm. know that a lot of people who like romantic comedies really enjoy this one, but it's not a movie I would have actively hunted down and pursued to watch had we not decided to do Sandra Palooza. I've always really liked this movie a lot, and it's one of the reasons I suggested it. It's Sandra Bullock fully stepping into her romantic comedy character that she plays in later movies in the decade and in some other romantic comedies beyond that. She was making it at the same time as she was making movies like Demolition Man and Speed and A Time to Kill, right? So it's just like, it's one of those things that's a, it just feels a little bit extra special because it's her and because of what she brings to it and the other work she was doing at the time that makes it not as throwaway as another movie very much like this would be. And as you said, it's absolutely cake, but the thing we've been talking about this whole time is that it does do a little bit more than cake. It does so in a way that takes you by surprise and 
where you're not mad that you watched it. And makes you briefly consider the debate over socialized national health care. Just think about it for a hot minute. Right. Like you said, the reason that this movie is so standout and the reason that it is as good as it is is because of Sandra Bullock. We keep coming back to this. I think it's a good place to close in just discussing a thing that we sort of brought up in our reflection on this movie and on future movies that we'll do for Sandra Palooza, which is, is there another performer, is there another actress specifically in the 90s who can go tit for tat with Sandra Bullock? No, there was no other leading lady doing as much successful cross-genre work as prolifically as Sandra. Like, if you look at the other women working in the 90s who were at her stature and just star power, there's, you know, Susan Sarandon, there's... Julia Roberts. Julia Roberts was one that I was thinking of, but even so, like, not nearly as prolific. Not nearly as prolific and had a more narrowed scope in terms of genre. Right. Julia Roberts would never do an action movie. Jodie Foster, also doing a ton of work in the 90s, but not as much as Sandra. And, yeah, I think you just have to admire how successfully she inhabits very distinct cinematic spaces and landscapes and and characters, but still brings something that's fundamentally her to the characters without it being like, oh, that's just George Clooney playing George Clooney in Ocean's Eleven, right? Or Brad Pitt just being Brad Pitt. Or Brad Pitt just being Brad Pitt in every movie that he's in. It doesn't feel like that. But there is still a marker. There is a Sandra Bullock watermark that she has on these characters that, as we've discussed, I think actually benefits the characters, benefits the story, rather than just saying, oh, this is Sandra Bullock in a movie. It makes her singular, like we already said. I'm really excited to see what else there is and what else uh, is in store for this 90s Sandra Palooza. What are we doing? Who knows? It's a big mystery. It's a big mystery. I'm excited to find out. All I know is any time I get to spend with Sandra, I'm really happy about it. Well, you're in luck then. I am. As are you, dear listener, (laughs) because from now until the end of August, you're going to get nothing but Sandra. And if you're mad about it, this isn't the show for you. Yeah. Sorry about it. Sorry. Actually. I'm not. (laughs) No, we're not. I think that's about as good a place as any to wrap up. Thank you for listening, but most of all, and most importantly, I think, thank you to Sandra Bullock for existing. Earnestly and wholeheartedly, thank you, Sandra Bullock. We just so love you. We're excited to spend more time with you here in the Hit Factory. We've got more coming your way in Sandra Palooza the entire month. As always, you can follow us on Twitter, at HitFactoryPod. We are on Patreon, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show. That's patreon.com slash HitFactoryPod. Get involved, get some money in there for the COVID relief fund, and we will see you back here again with Sandra in tow. Thanks, guys. See ya. See ya. Be the old school. Yeah, old school. We the old school. Yeah, old school. 
money, got me some roses and a little bling. I knocked on her door, she said, what you waiting for? I heard you was looking for a king. Been climbing the pyramid, her steps made of green. I'm getting closer, getting closer to my little queen.